0: Welcome to Episode 8 of South Coast, A Shaman's Tale from the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 16, Aram's Inlet, December 8, 2304. Dispose it's something on the southern reaches, Tony asked in the latest round of guesswork. "'Why would they want us off the planet for that?' Jimmy asked back. "'There's nobody down there, and half the year it's a frozen wasteland. "'They could have a huge facility spewing waste carbon into the atmosphere. "'We'd never know.' "'Okay, so it has to be something here on the western reaches.' "'Tony started down that well-worn path once again. "'Something they want to do with the continent "'that's not consistent with having all of us here.' "'Jimmy shook his head. "'It doesn't seem possible that there's something on the planet. "'It has to be something outside of here.' "'Okay, why?' Well, call it a failure of imagination, but I can't think of anything they could want down here, except the food. The initial asset surveys are pretty clear. Ore's out, and even if it weren't, they wouldn't need to close down the fisheries in the farms, Jimmy said. Something toxic, then. Jimmy shrugged. Well, maybe. Then maybe it's something they're going to bring down. But we're talking about a management company that handles what? Five corporate planets just in the Dunsiny sector? Gods, how many more in the Western Annex? They're really only interested in one thing. Money, Tony said. Exactly. Jimmy slapped his desk in emphasis. So where's the money? Not in product, not in manpower. They're not getting enough incremental value from the rising food prices to offset the nosedive in stock value. Tony ticked them off his fingers. What's important enough to bug Violet's office? Crime or really big money, Tony said. And do we know they're not bugging us? Jimmy shook his head. I'm assuming they have, but it's just not worth looking for. Tony looked startled. Should we be talking about this here, then? Jimmy laughed. What, and hide the fact that we're totally clueless? I think they've figured that out already. Tony shrugged. Okay, good point. But it is a nice day out. Let's go get an early lunch and maybe drink ourselves into a stupor for the afternoon. Jimmy laughed. Okay, good idea. The two men got their parkas and headed out of the rather shabby-looking building that served as Pirano Fisheries World Headquarters on St. Cloud. It really was nothing more than a prefab three-story Utila build. The sun and wind had taken a toll on the exterior finish, but after almost a century it still looked passable, if a bit scrubbed up around the edges. Most of the business support staff was scattered across the south coast and linked by the net, so there wasn't any real need for a large central staff. As they made their way down Quayside, the sun glinted off the small crusts of snow blown into the corners, and the smell of cold ocean washed over them. They turned the corner and headed along East Birch for Barney's Beanery. Jimmy liked Barney's because of the combination of coffee and soups that Barney offered up during the winter. Barney's wife Giselle was crew on one of the boats during the season, but when the fleet was in for the winter, she became the chief soup chef and bread baker. Barney made most of his money over the winter months, largely because everybody knew about the fresh soups, stews, chowders, and breads. The day was sparkling cold, even though it was bright, the sun gave little heat, and the wind funneled between the low buildings on either side. They huddled in their jackets, hiking briskly along, trying to move fast enough to keep warm against the bite of the wind. Tony said, so? Anything from Andrew? Jimmy shook his head. He's pretty sure the point is to drive the price of stock down so somebody can buy up the St. Cloud Combine. There's nothing in any of the other Allied holdings that's even similar, and certainly nothing like this in Umber. Do we know for sure? Jimmy shrugged, as nearly as anybody can know without a face-to-face meeting, I guess. But it's hard to say. I got a flash from Angela last night on the private family address, Jimmy said. Unless they're a lot more insinuated than we think, that should be secure. Well, if they've compromised Annette, Tony said. Oh, I'm assuming they've compromised Annette, but they'd have to have broken the family codes, too. You encrypt your family messages, Tony asked incredulously. Don't you? Jimmy shot back with a grin. The tip of his nose was getting numb, and the wind seemed to be cutting right through his jacket and washing across his bare back. "'Tony shrugged. "'All my family's on planet. "'We don't talk much.' (laughs) "'Jimmy grinned. "'They walked on silently for another tick. "'So who's trying to buy the planet?' "'Tony asked. "'And why are Shyster, Shyster and Shylock "'driving the price down if all they want is money?' "'It makes no sense,' Jimmy said, "'but it has to be rational. "'There's a logical reason here. "'We just can't see it.' "'Tony stopped dead in his tracks, "'and Jimmy took two more steps before he realized it. "'It's too obvious,' Tony was saying. "'What's too obvious?' asked Jimmy. Who's buying the planet? Jimmy looked at his friend. Who's buying the planet is too obvious. Tony grinned. It's so stupidly simple. We never saw it. Jimmy blinked. I still don't see it. We have a group of money-grubbing lawyers running a management outfit, Tony said. Yeah? Jimmy nodded. and They started walking again. They seem hell-bent on either destroying a cash cow or driving the planetary co-op out of business. Yeah? Jimmy agreed. They're going to lose money if they keep it up. Yep, Jimmy said again. But they haven't lost very much of it yet, Tony pointed out. That startled Jimmy, but his gaze turned inward as he considered the situation. A little minor fluctuation in the stock price. That's not real money, is it? he said to himself. Nope, Tony agreed. We're assuming they want to sell the company and make the money on the deal, but it doesn't make sense. In the first place, they'd want to make the most money, which means increasing the value of the shares. Yeah, Jimmy agreed, but they don't own that many shares. They only have a few percent of the stock, Tony pointed out. So how are they going to make money by selling the company? Jimmy blinked as he caught up with the logic. They get a commission on the sale, but it has to be approved by the board. What if the board doesn't approve? Well, then they're left with an empty planet, assuming they follow through with this quota thing, Jimmy said. Right, Tony exclaimed. So they have to make the planet look like a bad investment, so the board is willing to sell it and they can't make it so bad that the board gets suspicious or actually follow through. Whoever buys this place has to be buying it for the food. Jimmy was so deep in thought he almost walked past Barney's. So they're driving the price down so the board will be forced to sell, he asked, stopping suddenly as he realized where he was. I don't see any other reason, Tony said, and we've been pondering this for weeks. Jimmy had to agree with that, and as soon as he did, another obvious fact crashed into his head. The dawning comprehension must have showed on his face. Tony saw it and nodded. It has to be. It's the only reason to drive the price down. The bastards, Jimmy said. They're not trying to drive us off, Jimmy, but it's going to be close. Yeah, Jimmy said. They're going to have to take it to the brink to get the best price. Tony nodded his agreement. It's going to get ugly, and how do we stop them? Jimmy got a predatory smile on his face. We beat him to it, he said. Let's get out of this cold and get something to eat. Tony held the door open for his boss, and they found a booth amid the savory aromas of fresh ground coffee, yeasty bread, and spicy soup. The place hadn't filled up with the lunch crowd yet. It was still early, so they had a hearty lunch and took a couple of coffees to go. While they were eating, Jimmy sent a message to Violet. clam Bake this weekend. You and Andrew want to come down? The acceptance was almost immediate. Tony smirked, and the condemned ate a hearty meal. After they got back to the office, they took up their conversation where it left off. Maybe they're after the manpower, Tony suggested. Do you think they want us all to go to Marguerite as construction workers? They're still advertising for people like crazy over there. Jimmy shook his head. That seems totally unlikely. Deep space construction is a specialized field, and we don't have the skills. You can't put fishermen in hard suits and expect them to build in hard vacuum. It just doesn't make sense. Why are they driving us out of business? Tony sighed. I don't know, boss. I just don't know. Well, we got business to attend to if we're going to get these boats repaired and back over the side in just eight weeks, Jimmy said as he brought up a list of the required repairs and scheduled maintenance on the Aram's Inlet Fleet. Where are we on new construction, he asked. Jake will have twelve new boats ready to go when the weather breaks, Tony said. Half and half, stern trawler inside. We got crews, Jimmy asked him, scanning the report on his computer while he talked. Tony shrugged. We don't hear, but these are going down the coast to Larbic and Blossom. They've both got enough to crew them up. Any problems with the winterization? Jimmy asked. Tony shook his head. Nah, one boat needs a whole new set of running gear, but she was due for a refit. Next year we'll have to do a lot of refitting, but we're in good shape for spring. Any of the villages reporting any problems? No, Tony said, by this time of year, all the problems are people problems, not equipment. They spent the rest of the afternoon on routine management of their little piece of the operation. Chapter 17, Calum's Cove, December 12, 2304. Richard trudged back from town in time for lunch. As he came into the kitchen, Rachel smiled up from her terminal and then frowned at the look on his face. What's the matter? Eloise Sperber. She's missing, he said. What happened? Brian says she's just been moping about. I went to see her this morning to see if she wanted to talk. She wasn't there. How could she disappear, Rachel asked. Richard shrugged. Brian was at the diner this morning and took me aside for a chat. When he finally got around to the issue, I left him there and went to his cottage to talk to Eloise. There was nobody home. Went back to the diner, but nobody had seen her. Where could she have gone? Richard shrugged. I hate to think. Were any of her clothes missing? Yeah, Brian says her coat was gone, but he didn't see anything else. Alan's checking the transportation records. Felicia McMasters has taken a shipment up to Fairfax this morning. "'Felicia and Eloise are friends, so she might have gone up for a day's shopping. "'Without saying anything,' Rachel asked. "'He shrugged again. Seems unlikely, but who's to say? "'People get a little scattered this time of year,' he said, "'as he shrugged out of the heavy coat. "'It's a little early for that, isn't it?' Rachel asked. "'It's the darkest point of the year,' he pointed out. "'And if she was already close to the edge because of the quota situation, who knows?' "'He answered with a sigh as he hung his coat on a peg by the door.' "'and settled wearily into a chair at the table. "'Where's Otto? Oh, he went out to Sandy Long about two stands ago. "'He should be back soon. He'll be getting hungry,' she said with a smile. "'Richard chuckled ruefully. "'I couldn't take the cold, but it'll be hunger that brings him back inside. "'Go figure. "'He's a growing boy, Richard.' "'So am I,' Richard said, wryly patting his stomach. "'But I'm growing out, not up.' "'They were still chuckling when Otto stamped into the kitchen and said, "'Hi, what's for lunch?' "'He seemed confused when they launched into another round of laughter.' After lunch, Richard put on his coat and headed back down to the village. He didn't say anything, but a nod to Rachel told her what she needed to know. By unspoken agreement, they hadn't mentioned it to Otto. As he left, Otto looked out the window after him. Where's he going? Back to the village? Rachel just nodded. Yeah, he has to help out the Spurbers this afternoon, she said. This might be a good time for you to go practice carving, she suggested, trying to distract him from even more questions that she didn't want to answer. Your father will be home later, and I suspect would like a nice warm shop to come back to. Otto smiled and took the opportunity to shrug quickly into his coat and make a dash for the shop. Inside it was still cold. His breath fogged in front of his face and the little puffs hung in the still air before dissipating. He crouched in front of the small stove and soon had a little fire going with shavings and chips, and he slowly built it up with larger sticks of kindling. He knelt before the fire and was soon mesmerized by the flickering light inside. The warmth on his face was a welcome contrast to the icy caress of the still air in the shop. He closed his eyes and thought about his father's going back to the village. Something was wrong, he knew. They were just too careful over lunch, and obviously his mother knew what was happening. He opened his eyes and slipped another bit of kindling off the stack. A splinter stabbed his palm, and he winced as he pulled it out, tossing the blood-stained splinter into the stove after the kindling and watching it catch and burn instantly. Again the dancing flames caught his eye, and he gazed deep into the small blaze, his mind elsewhere. "'You think Brian would like me in this?' a woman's voice asked with a throaty giggle. Otto started and looked around, but there was nobody in the shop. He shook himself, feeling as if he were just waking up. The episode passed, though, and he found himself strangely calm. He looked into the stove once more, selected a larger bit of wood from the stack, and placed it gently in the firebox before closing the door. "'Time to get to work,' he said to himself, and slung his coat on the hook by the door, rubbing his arms in the chill, and opened the drawer where he'd been keeping his carving. The wood he'd found with the shark in it was in there, along with the bit he thought held a fox. There were other pieces he wasn't sure about, but they were all little bits he'd found over the winter and had brought home to add to his own collection of materials. There were also some shells and bits of bone as well. He pulled a folding knife from his pocket and opened it, running it carefully across the sharpening stone to give it an edge, and then took the bit with the shark in it out of the drawer. He could see the shark clearly now, He fed the stove a few middle-sized sticks to keep it happy, before settling into what he'd come to think of as his chair. It was really only a crate with a pad on top, back against the wall. He was close enough to the stove that he could feel the warming metal already, but not so close that he was uncomfortable when it had a good fire going in it. As he settled himself carefully on the pad, he noticed that the splinter wound had blent a bit, and he'd smeared a little on the wood. He was alarmed, thinking he'd ruined the piece before he started, but soon realized he'd be carving that bit off anyway. So he began scraping away the pieces of wood that weren't the shark, and his fingers soon took the task away from his mind. The practice with the knife and wood were paying off, and he was able to let his mind drift a bit while he scraped. The knife made little soft scratching noises that he could barely hear over the crackling of the stove, and the warmth began to build in the small space. His thoughts went to his mother and to her work on the net. He remembered that when he found this particular bit of wood that day, she'd showed him how she patrolled the network, looking for deals and news, anything that would help turn a profit or increase the probability of one. He liked the image of his mother as shark, and was caught by surprise thinking about her as a fisherman and giving that up to be married. He knew without being told that it was his father's wish that she not fish, and that only the emergency of the quotas would permit her to go back to the work that she loved. Otto's fingers worked the wood and the knife as he thought about how that must have been. He couldn't imagine how anyone could give up the sea, but then he didn't know how the whole marriage thing worked. He knew what men and women did, of course, and he'd read his share of what his mother called trashy romances. He had an idea of love, and he knew the effect that Susan Wasser had on his body whenever he saw her in her tight jeans and tighter skirts in midsummer. He swallowed hard, momentarily distracted from his carving by the image in his head. Bright sun, warm day, lush body. He sighed and looked back to his work and was shocked to find that the shark was free in his hand. He held it up to the light, turning it this way and that. It was a rough shape, almost primitive. It had nothing in common with the smoothly finished carvings of fish, birds, and animals that his father had lined up. It looked somehow crude but still alive, except for the bit of shell that marked its heart. He rummaged in his drawer until he found a bit of shell with rich purple coloring. He used a bit of abrasive to smooth the shape the way he had seen his father do and managed to cut a small notch in the chest of the shark without breaking off any of the fins. Working carefully, he fit the shell to the cut, chipping, scraping, and cutting wood and shell until the piece fit, more or less, into the notch he'd prepared for it. He put a dab of mastic on the back of the shell and he heard a small snap as he pressed the shell firmly down into the notch, allowing it to seat properly for the first time. At first he thought it had broken under the pressure of his thumb, but looking at it he realized that it had merely seated itself. It wasn't perfectly flush with the surface the way his fathers were, but as a first attempt Otto found himself staring at a kind of odd satisfaction, thinking, I did it, I did it, I really did it, over and over to himself. He held it up to the light again, looking at the way the watery winter sun stroked the rough edges and admired his handiwork for a moment before he realized that more than a couple of stands had passed and the stove needed tending. He tucked the shark in his shirt pocket, folded a knife, and stashed that in his pants, then turned to stoke up the stove until he had a cheery blaze going. When the wood was well caught, he slipped the dampers closed a bit to slow the fire down, slipped into his coat, and dashed back to the house. His mother was there, of course, but she didn't look right. Distracted, perhaps. Sad, certainly. She looked up as if expecting somebody, but Otto saw the look that said he wasn't who she was expecting. Father's not back yet, Otto said with a smile, but look what I made you. He reached inside the coat and pulled the shark out of his pocket. The fins tangled a bit in the fabric, but eventually it came free and he handed it to his mother. She reached out by reflex to take what her son was offering, but when he dropped the figure in her hand, she almost dropped it in shock. A Welkie, she asked, wonderingly, looking from him to the shark and back again. "'He shrugged. "'Well, I carved it. "'It kind of looks like a Welkie, but who knows?' he said. "'Her thumb stroked the roughly carved bit of wood "'as she held it in her hand. "'She rolled it over to see the purple shell underneath. "'Nice color in the heart,' she said. "'It's rough,' he apologized. "'But it's yours.' "'She looked at him with a small frown. "'Do you think I need a Welkie?' she asked curiously he shrugged. I don't know, but it just seems like my first one should go to you, and I kind of like the idea of you as a shark swimming through the net looking for prey, he said with warm enthusiasm. Her hand closed around the shark's body even as she started to put it down. Thank you, she said. It means so much to me knowing you carved it. She was looking at Otto in a way that made him feel a bit uncomfortable, like she'd never seen him before. Would you like a kappa? he asked, to break the mood. Oh yes, that would be lovely, she shook herself and smiled. Thank you, it took almost no time to brew a couple of cups of tea, and he snagged a couple of cookies from the jar as he slipped his coat back on. "'Well, i better go tend the stove,' he said, and he headed for the door. "'Okay, hon,' huh? she said. "'Be careful out there.' There was something in her tone that made Otto stop at the door and turn back to her, one hand on the latch. He said, "'She's okay, you know. She went shopping for something nice to wear for Brian.' His mother looked at him as if she'd been slapped, but he only smiled and waved as he slipped out to the cold afternoon and headed back to the little shop where the shaman did his work. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from Wish by Raphael garcia Perdigon. Available from the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For a website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.org golden.